0: Today, I'm going to add another message to the series that I have been in now for the last several weeks. It's a series I'm calling Identity and Inheritance. And I'm going to be ministering for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling Law, the War Against the Soul. What I want us to see through the message today is this. The root system, of conflict is found in condemnation. And the scriptures tell us that condemnation comes from the law. So it's all connected. We so often want to keep mowing dandelions without dealing with the root system. And how many of you know conflict just keeps coming up out of the ground, doesn't it? You've got to deal with the root system. You've got to go deeper. And God has made this so simple, I'm just almost appalled that the church could overlook this. So again, the message title is called Law, the War Against the Soul. One of the synonyms for the word war is conflict. Two countries are at war with one another. Two countries are in conflict with one another. They are the same thing. You see where I'm coming from on that? And a needless amount, a crazy amount of people, including believers, live in daily conflict of the soul. They suffer emotionally in daily conflict of the soul. There doesn't seem to be a pause button for many people. There's... No oasis nearby to refresh themselves. Their emotions are like a blender full of ooze. They're just kind of emulsified and all mixed up. They just can't seem to sort things out. Their thoughts are troubled. Their minds are under siege with restless meditations. They don't realize who they are In Christ Jesus, because I'm telling you, when you realize who you are in Christ Jesus, it will not make you arrogant. It will make you a heat washer. They don't realize who they are in Christ Jesus. Why? How? Because they are strangers and foreigners to the finished work of grace. Most people do not understand what those words even mean when you say the finished work of grace. Oh, they've become experts at hearing the voice of condemnation and the subtle echoes of unworthiness. But they are novice discerners of the precious voice of Holy Spirit, the one whom Jesus gave to us as he ascended into heaven. He said, I'm going to give you, I'm going to leave with you, Holy Spirit. The most simplistic definition for the word conflict, it means to struggle. And whether we're talking about a physical struggle or an emotional or a mental struggle, Conflict is a wrestling match minus the referee. There's no referee It seems to be near that when you tap out and when you said, I've had enough, kind of like they do in wrestling. In wrestling, when the opponent's been pinned or they've just had enough, they've been put in a hole, they can do this. That's called tapping out, and then even their opponent knows, I have to release you. But how many of you know there are people, multitudes of people, that are so under siege with their emotional baggage and trauma that they just can't seem to find the referee to be able to tap out of their issue that they're dealing with. And this struggling can produce uninvited feelings, things like shame and guilt, anxiety and fear, sadness and depression, Many people have spiraled down and have been swallowed up in the abyss of hopelessness. And I see it all the time. I hear it all the time. They are totally unaware that the spiritual root system of conflict comes primarily through the law of Moses. Now, you just would not make that connection. Most believers are taught, pray harder. Declare more faith. Spiritual warfare. They're taught that. And I don't have a problem with any of those things. But they're not taught how to love and how to receive love. They're not taught grace and how to dispense grace. They're not good receivers in that regard. Kids take Moses to school with them. Parents take Moses to work with them. The family takes Moses to church with them, and then when they're done, they go and visit a restaurant, and they take Moses to the restaurant. And then, when the day is far spent, they tuck Moses in bed, and they just kiss him goodnight and say, We'll see you in the morning, Moses. Many have never experienced a day without rules. Subconsciously, They are under this law-based, rule-driven system and they don't know what it's like to live a day without legalism, without rules. Many don't know how to live apart from performance. If you remove, come on, if you remove the old covenant law from your mind's database. Your mind's Rolodex. I'm going back a little ways here in a your mind's hard drive, okay? If you have this ability to delete it, to expunge it, to remove it, to wipe it off, to wipe it clean. If you were able to take away Moses from your database, your hard drive, if you will. Then conflict, the war against the soul will subside and Moses will be served in the eviction notice. You say, Pastor Mark, Moses represents the law. Is that right? He represents the law. Is that correct? Yes. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it was in the Exodus that Moses received the law. And then from that point forward to the cross, it was all a law-based system. That's a lot of years. That's hundreds of years, thousands of years. Moses represents the law, yes. So then you say, Mark, are you a law basher? No, I'm not a law basher. Do you despise Moses? No, no, I love Moses. I can't wait to see Moses in heaven and give him a hug and just visit with him for a million years and just get to know him. So I don't hate Moses. Even now, even to this present day, even this moment, the law has a purpose, but not for believers. You show me in the scriptures that the law is for believers in the new covenant. You cannot show me. But yet the church teaches us that we are under the law that we are under a law-based system. You say, Mark, but how can you say such a thing? Because the Scriptures declared it first. And what do the Scriptures tell us? They tell us that the law was not made for the righteous. Now stop. You ask yourself quietly, just internally, are you righteous? Have you been made the righteousness of God in Christ? Has he forgiven your sins? Has he removed your sins from you? Has he taken them away? Well, then that means you are righteous. There's nothing unrighteous about you. You have the righteousness of God in Christ. So, the law was not made. It is not put in place for the righteous. Now, I don't know how we can continue to read scriptures and think, I'm under the law. I'm under performance. I've got to do to please the Father. No, that's all about law. And the law is not made for the righteous. You say, you got a scripture for that? Yes, I'll get to it in just a minute. Just stay with me, okay? The cocoon is made for the caterpillar. But once the caterpillar becomes a butterfly, The butterfly will never again take up residence within the cocoon. Do you know that? Do you ever see a butterfly crawl back in the cocoon, a shed cocoon? Doesn't happen, does it? For starters, it doesn't fit. And so when we read the Word and we find scriptures that say, don't do this, all it's telling us is that doesn't fit who you are. It's not like the commands from the old covenant, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt do this. It's not the same. It's just telling us that is not fitting for believers. It doesn't fit your new nature. It doesn't fit who you are. It doesn't represent you very well. The butterfly can't go back into the cocoon because it doesn't fit. When we are given instruction in the new covenant of things we cannot do, The instruction is not our salvation maintenance plan, okay? So we're not supposed to follow these rules, if you will, or these encouragements because we're maintaining our salvation. Again, it's to remind us that it's not fitting for us. Like in Ephesians where it says, let no unwholesome communication come out of your mouth but only that which is for the use of edifying, that it might minister grace to the hearers. not a command to not cuss or swear or talk jive. What it's saying is, look, you've got a higher command. Don't let unwholesome communication come out, because what you want to do is you want to minister grace, it says, to the listeners, to the hearers. The butterfly will never take up residence again inside the cocoon because, number one, it's not the right environment. It's no longer designed for that. It has shed its former mantle. It's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Does this sound a little familiar? The old things are passed away. It doesn't look the same. It's not the same shape. And friends, the change that's taking place on us is on the inside of us. But that change has the ability and the power to manifest through our words and through other expressions. It's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The butterfly gets to live in a new kingdom. Have you ever thought about that? Before, it lived on the ground. It lived on tree bark. It lived on the leaf of the tree. It lived on branches. But now, it's got a new identity. It can soar on the current of the wind. And so it is with believers. We have shed the old man. Come on. We have shed the old man. He doesn't exist. He is gone. He has died in Christ. He has been crucified with Christ. He has been buried with Christ in baptism. He has been raised in resurrection power and life. We have abandoned the former tabernacle. We no longer live in the former tabernacle. We live in a new kingdom. We soar on the current of what? The Holy Spirit. We have been born again. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. Friends, Butterflies only struggle as they're coming out of the cocoon. But once released into their newfound freedom, their struggle is over with. It's done. It's gone. They will never struggle again. And the same is supposed to be true with believers. Our struggle, and this is the way it was for me, my struggle was found in the trepidation, the fear, if you will, of exiting, of vacating, of shedding, of letting go of the only cocoon I had ever known. The cocoon known as the law. So, there was some trepidation to let go of what I already had in search for something that the Holy Spirit was trying to convince me of will be better for you. Much better. Beyond better. Over the top. Better. I'm talking about the unfit environment that church doctrine has shoehorned new creations to live into. And it's happening, friends. There's something inside of me that doesn't even like seeing things like that because I never want to think I'm superior to anybody else. No, God loves me just as much as He loves anybody. He loves every pastor. He loves every worship leader. But friends, we got to get on board with this new covenant thing. And that's why the Apostle Paul, I mean, he would get in your face, in your space, and he would just forbid you to teach old covenant principles. Forbid you to preach and teach philosophies and rhetoric, if you will. The Holy Spirit is patient with believers. Can we get an amen there? Come on. That's because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, joy peace, long-suffering. Come on. That means patience. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit. He gives us what He already has, love, joy, peace, patience. I would rather walk in that fruit than walk around with that big voice of faith, declare it, name it, claim it, take it home and frame it. It's crazy. It took the Holy Spirit Many, many years, about 15 or so years, to convince me who the law was meant for and what the law was intended to do. It took a long time. Why? Because I kept hearing a different story from all my teachers. So let's ask the questions. Has the law been abolished? That means, has the law been taken away? Has the law been abolished? Is the law dead? The answer to those two questions are the same and the answer is no, not at all. It's not dead. (laughs) The law is at work and is very alive. The law serves a purpose, listen to me carefully now, but not for believers, okay? The law has a purpose, but not for believers. Believers are dead to the law. Is there a scripture for that? Absolutely. Believers are no longer under the law. Is there a scripture for that? Yes. Believers are free from the law. Is there a scripture for that? Yes. And Christ is the end of the law for those who have believed. So, what is our response to this kind of news? What is our response to this much good news? We put it on and we pour it out. That's what the response is. We put it on. The scriptures tell us to put on Christ, which is God's love, God's grace, God's compassion, God's mercy. Let our identity in Christ be seen and our inheritance in Christ be sure. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, we find these words. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. He loves Timothy. And here's what he says. As I urged you when you went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines. Now, come on, folks. What were they teaching? Think about it. Paul's a New Covenant man now. What's false doctrine? Philosophies, part of it. Theories. Opinions. But even Old Covenant. It was true at one time, but it's not the doctrine of the New Covenant. He said, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. Look what he says then. Which is by faith. Friends, come on. God's work is advanced by faith. Faith in what? No, it's faith in who? It's faith in Christ. God's work is advanced by faith. Faith in what He's done for us. Faith in His grace. So I want to ask you a couple of questions. What were the false doctrines that the Apostle Paul was concerned about? What did Paul command Timothy to forbid? Again, we could go through a painful list of 613 commandments. That's one way we could do it. And we could settle some of the disputes with just myth busters and DNA test results. Or we could summarize Paul's charge to Timothy which was to allow only the teachings that coalesced, that were cohesive with salvation by grace through faith and righteousness by believing. Paul knew that the law was responsible for most of the conflict that he was facing in those days. It was the war against the soul. And that a believer's identity was always under ambush when the law was mixed with grace. You see, Timothy was familiar with mixture. He grew up in the cocoon of mixture. His mother was Jewish, and his father was a Gentile. And because Timothy's father was a Gentile, he refused to allow Timothy to be circumcised when he was born. If you read the story, you'll see that Paul circumcised Timothy. And the reason he circumcised Timothy was to literally avoid criticism from the Jews. He thought it would just go better if we just do this. It's not going to make you any more of a man. It's not going to make you closer to God. We're just going to do this so that we don't become a stumbling block, okay? You see, Paul knew that the law created conflict of the soul. Paul knew that myths and legends, opinions, genealogies, and the sound bites of the Old Covenant lacked love and faith. It didn't operate by love. It didn't have to operate by faith. You just went through the motions. You just kept the rules. You just kept the laws. And it accomplished no more than just meaningless talk. It would take the virtues of love and grace and sincere faith To promote good spiritual health, good spiritual bacteria, good spiritual flora in the man's soul. It would take the gospel of the new covenant of grace to do that for us. And that was Paul's point as he penned his letter to Timothy. Continuing in those scriptures, the Apostle Paul said, The goal of this command, look what he says, is love. I told you this is the goal. He says the goal of telling people don't preach this kind of nonsense is love. What do you mean love? Love for people. Love doesn't let somebody go down a dead end when they know tragedy awaits them at the end. If you had a dog that was vicious out in your backyard, you wouldn't let a guest out in your backyard. That's not love. And Paul realized that there was nothing there at the end of what they were preaching and what they were teaching. So he says, the goal of of what I'm telling you to do is love, which comes from a pure heart, he said, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then he says, some have departed from these, these teachings, these principles, and have turned to meaningless talk. Now, it sounds good. The rhetoric sounds like you're educated, but Paul said that is meaningless babble. It's meaningless jargon. It's meaningless talk. Because it doesn't do anything for you. It lets your friend out in the backyard when you've got a vicious dog. They end up worse before you let your friend in the backyard. Next scripture. And then he says, here's what he said to Timothy. He said, they want to be teachers of the law. See this? He said, they want to tell you, don't do this. Don't do that. You better do this. You better get circumcised. You better be baptized. You better go to church. You better give. You better pray. You better obey those 613 laws. That's what they wanted. And the more you could find someone who was trying to clean themselves up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps, You know what? The prouder it made them feel because that guy belongs to me. I led him to Christ. I led that man to the Lord. I was his teacher. See, this is what they're thinking, right? And Paul knows, and he's telling Timothy right out of the gate, he said, they want to be teachers, look what he says, of the law. But then he said, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. They've got their PhD, I know, next to their name, but they don't know what they're talking about. They don't have a clue. They don't. And he said, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Okay, set that aside. He said, we also know that the law is not made for the righteous. Does Jesus live in you? Then the law is not made for you. Well, then who is it made for? Well, look what he says there. He said, the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers. Okay? Well, we're not lawbreakers even when we sin. Why? Because God has separated our sin as far as the East is from the West. He holds no records against us. He doesn't count our sins against us. It says the law was made for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful. It will do the body good when you come to the realization that the law is not your helper. Who is your helper? Come on. The Holy Spirit is our helper, friends. Yes. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a helper. I'm going to give you a comforter. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Friends, why do I need stone cold tablets to help me when I've got the sweet, precious Holy Spirit? Does that make sense? Come on. He produces in us love from a pure heart and sincere faith with a good conscience. That's what he does. I want to ask you a question. There's something inside of us that go, that sounds right, but how can the law be holy and righteous and good and perfect? How can it be all of that yet deadly at the same time? That's a good question, isn't it? Come on. That's a good question. How can the law be perfect yet deadly? That doesn't compute in our brains. And this is where the church gets hung up. It just doesn't register. That doesn't sound right. That's like saying something is perfect, but yet it's broken. No, it's not perfect anymore. It's broken. How can that be? Say, what are your thoughts on that, Mr. Mark? Okay. A crocodile has a perfect set of teeth. They are perfectly pointed. I've never seen square teeth on a crocodile. Have you? (laughs) They are perfectly white. I've never seen yellow teeth on a crocodile. They're always just glistening. And they are perfectly symmetrical. They just fit right together, right? A crocodile can see perfectly in murky waters. And they can live perfectly on land or in a river. Crocodiles are perfect hunters. And crocodiles are perfect swimmers. But in all that perfection, it doesn't mean that I'm going to let my children play with a crocodile, right? (laughs) I'm not going to let it happen. You see, there's another thing that crocodiles are perfect at, and they are perfectly deadly. Like the law, a crocodile is no respecter of flesh. Come on, let that register, folks. A crocodile doesn't sit out there in the old murky waters going, mm, zebra, I don't know about a zebra. Arthur just when he was here and we went to lunch, I was talking to him because he's from South Africa. We're talking about all the animals he's eating over there. I said, do they eat zebra? I'm just curious, you know. He said, oh, zebra are the worst tasting animals. He said, oh, they are just rotten to the core. I found that to be interesting, but I guarantee you if a zebra comes down to the water trough, man, the crocodile is just going to go, (laughs) ha, 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 gotcha. Crocodiles are no respecter of flesh. Crocodiles are opportunistic predators and will eat anything. Did you know that crocodiles are not able to chew their food? Did you know that? They swallow their prey whole or in large chunks say, Mark, what in the world are you giving out? Sadly, the body of Christ has done the same thing. Eating almost everything that comes their way without investing the time to chew on their spiritual food. That's what meditate means. It means to chew the cud. Did you know that? It means to ruminate. It means to chew the cud. It means to meditate on it. And see if the Holy Spirit isn't trying to convince you of some other truth rather than just the way it came from the pulpit. Swallowing church doctrine either in whole or large chunks in an attempt to satisfy their insatiable appetites, oblivious to the fact that their food has hooks in it. They just don't know that. Again, crocodiles are no respecter of flesh. They will swallow anything, and the body of Christ needs to awaken to the glorious truth that God has already condemned sin in the flesh. Am I in the Word? He's already condemned sin in the flesh. Our former sin nature is like a cocoon in that it has been shed and a new creation has emerged. The former tabernacle has been abandoned. It's been left behind. We cannot return to our former nature any more than an egg can be unscrambled or a butterfly can re-enter its cocoon. We are hidden in Christ. The scriptures tell us, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God even unto them which believe on his name. Friend, love is our power. Our power comes from the Father's love and his grace. Sonship, come on. Sonship is our identity, not servanthood. Jesus is our inheritance. Get that in your heart. He's our inheritance. And to all who live in Christ Jesus, we no longer live according to the flesh. But according to the Spirit. Now that is an amazing thing here. Even when you get tripped up as you're walking, doesn't mean you're in the flesh. You don't live in the flesh, you live in the Spirit. Okay? In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 9, we find these words. Look what it says For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering, to be our sin bearer, to be our sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, look at these words, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. You live according to the spirit. And then he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. He's talking about the unregenerate here. Those who live in the flesh, we don't live in the flesh, we've shed the old heart. He said, those who live in the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit, come on, is life and peace. How many of you love life and peace? Come on. Amen. Is life and peace. Next scripture. And then he says, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. What is the law? The law of love. Those who are in the realm of the flesh, the unregenerate, cannot please God. You, come on now, this is where we celebrate. You, however, look what he says, are not in the realm of the flesh. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to believers here now. He said, you, let's get something straight here. You need to understand your identity here. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And anyone that does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That's what he's saying. Those that have Christ Jesus, come on, have the Spirit. And we live according to the Spirit. Our identity is not flesh. Our identity is spirit and sons. We don't move from the spirit to the flesh, even in the midst of sin or failure. We are still in the spirit. If we are in Christ, he's saying there, then we belong to Christ. Now, if you were to contest that blue is the prettiest of colors, that's your opinion. That's okay. What if I think red is the prettiest of colors? Is that anything worth fighting over? It's just our thoughts. It's just our opinions, right? It's all benign. It's not worth fighting about. If one man says, I prefer the Big Mac, and another man says, I prefer the Quarter Pounder, so what? That's why you have a menu at these kind of places, right? Well, unfortunately, we've treated the New Covenant like a menu in that mini attempt to order as they please, including from the Old Covenant. Well, friends, I have a newsflash for you this morning that might create a bit of conflict in your soul. The Old Covenant is not on heaven's menu. (laughs) No believer is under the law, and not a single believer has to perform in order to be accepted by God. Isn't that great news? We don't have to perform to be accepted by God. And sin can never separate us from the love of God. That's Romans chapter 8. And our salvation can never be unfinished. We have a new identity in Christ Jesus, and our identity, I want to sound like a broken record here, is sonship, not servanthood. Our identity is spirit and not flesh. Conflict is a parasite, and it thrives in the armpit of condemnation. It thrives there. I want you to take a look at Merriam-Webster's definition of parasite. It says it's an organism living in, or on, or with another organism in order to obtain nutrients. In other words, it's extracting nutrients. And it's growing in size. Kind of like a tick. You ever seen a tick just get bigger and bigger as it's sucking the blood of an animal? Nutrients and grow or multiply often in a state that directly, come on, or indirectly harms the host. In other words, parasites are freeloaders. They contribute nothing pertaining to the host's health. And likewise, come on, with the law, it contributes nothing. Come on. You've got to get that in your heart. It contributes nothing. It doesn't make you prettier. It doesn't make you smarter. It doesn't make you more holy. It contributes nothing pertaining to our spiritual well-being. Swallowing the old covenant is like drinking a glass full of parasites. You will in turn become the host, and it will directly or indirectly affect your body. Parasites are not friends. They must be rooted out. The law, friends, is not our friend. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is the one who says he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother, didn't he? He's our friend. The law is not a friend. Jesus is our friend. The law is impartial. It's no respecter of flesh. If parasites are not removed, you know what they'll do? They will just grow and multiply and continue to steal our nutrients. What kind of nutrients do old covenant parasites steal? What what kind of nutrients do they take? Rest, peace, joy, kindness. They steal our love for others. They steal our compassion for others. But most of all, They will steal your identity. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, come on, familiar scripture here, isn't it? Everybody can quote this one. For the thief, come on, for the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy, Jesus said, I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, So often when we see that word thief, we go, "Ah, that's the devil, that's Satan. Oh, God, come on, friends. The thief is not limited to Satan. The thief is anyone or anything that steals, kills, and destroys. Therefore, condemnation is a thief. Fear is a thief because it steals your peace. Unrest is a thief. Mold is a good example of a parasite. You can breathe in mold spores or you can even absorb them through your hands, your skin. But once inside your body, mold becomes a parasite. It feeds on your body, colonizing as it's taking ground, taking over. And as it grows, it spreads. And as it spreads, it releases something called mycotoxins, which are poisonous to our bodies. Doctrine can work the very same way. When we take in the law, it is like taking in mycotoxins. And this is where, friends, the war of the soul begins. Again, it's so hidden. People don't see this. The scriptures tell us, come on, the scriptures tell us that the letter And when it's talking about the letter, it's talking about the law. The letter or the law is the ministry of what? Condemnation. So that's all the do's and don'ts from the 613 laws. That's called the letter, the moral law even. He says, the letter, the law, he says, it's the ministry of condemnation. And once the law, come on, everybody in here has fought with this at one time. Took me 15 years. I'm still being transformed. But once the law, that rule-based system is put into our minds, you know what it does? It begins to colonize. It begins to take up space. And so that when a truth comes in, we go, wait a minute, that can't be right. I've already got something in here that says that's wrong. That's where the wrestling match really begins to take place. And as it grows, this law in our minds begins to grow and it spreads. It releases poisons into our mind and into our will and into our emotions. In other words, condemnation becomes the host for the parasite called conflict to freeload off of. And if all we do in our attempt to resolve conflict is to be free of the conflict itself and not address the condemnation, then conflict will manifest again and again and again. When Jesus encountered the woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, he ministered to her deepest issue, her deepest need. What was her deepest issue? Was it conflict of the soul? No, that wasn't it. Was it the struggle with sin? No, that wasn't it either. Was it because she was facing the judging stones of the Pharisees? No, no, no. Deeper, deeper. Could crocodile tears have helped her in her time of need? No, they didn't help her at all. They stood there with their stones ready to stone her. Did she have the ability, friends? Did she have the ability to crawl back into the cocoon of her virginity? Crawl back into the cocoon of her innocence and then not do that? No, it was too late. She had fallen into the abyss of hopelessness. The condemnation that awaited her was just. Because the law called for her to be stoned. Can you just say it with me? But Jesus, come on. (laughs) But Jesus, come on. But Jesus, isn't he a life changer? Come on. Without Jesus there that moment, that woman's not recorded in history. And there would have been many women that would have been stoned. They're not recorded, but Jesus was there. And because he's full of life, and because he's full of compassion, and he's full of love, and he's full of grace. Do you think he's going to let that happen on his watch? Come on. But Jesus, come on, that should be the two words that come out of our mouth every time we face conflict of any sort. But Jesus, I always like to say it like this when I'm facing any situation that there is an expiration date on the chaos I'm looking at. But Jesus, and Jesus said to her, come on, listen now, here's Jesus' words, woman, where are thine accusers? See, they've already dropped their rocks and left, and Jesus says, where are your accusers at? He says, has no one condemned you? Do you notice how he brings that word in? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. (laughs) Wait a minute now. This is going to have me walking worse than a nervous father waiting for his baby to be born. Oh my goodness, come on. What just happened here? What what happened? Wasn't the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, wasn't she guilty? Yes. Didn't the law command such women to be stoned to death? Yes! What's those two words again? But Jesus! But Jesus! The one who loved her even while she was in the abyss of hopelessness and the cocoon of condemnation, He had a better idea. He had a better idea. Jesus Remove the parasite of judgment and the mycotoxins known as condemnation. He demonstrated a love, he demonstrated life, he demonstrated a compassion, he demonstrated a caring, he demonstrated a grace and a mercy for her that she had never known. How do I know that? Because she's in this situation. Had she had known about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy and the compassion of God, she wouldn't have found herself in this situation. She had never known this. What, now, come on. What do you suppose it did for her heart? I mean, like, come on, think about it. I mean, if the Grinch heart can grow this big, just listen to Whoville sing. What did it do for her heart? What do you do for her heart? I'm sorry, I get excited about this because I know how good God is. (sighs) By sending the Pharisees away, Jesus dealt with conflict, the fruit of the problem. Do you hear what I said? By sending the Pharisees away, Jesus dealt with the fruit of the problem But before Jesus would send the woman away, he dealt with condemnation, the root of the problem. Because if all Jesus would have said that day, you get a free pass, I just have to be in the right place at the right time. Now, I recommend you don't do that again. No! Her heart wouldn't have been changed. The condemnation would have still been there. But when Jesus spoke those words, neither do I condemn you, that did something for her heart. Her heart grew so big at that moment. In my heart of hearts, I know that this woman, I just know that this woman never found herself in the arms of strange flesh ever again. I just know that. You say, how would you know something like that? Does the Bible tell us that? No, not really. Not unless that was Mary Magdalene. I know that because Jesus crushed the cocoon of condemnation. There was no place to go back to. Friends, the finished work of grace does not merely deal with conflict. It deals with condemnation. The deepest root. Jesus gave her a gift that day that the law, the war against the soul, could never give her. That's why in Romans chapter 8, and verse 1, we find this amazing truth. Come on. Therefore, for that reason... that Jesus shed his blood for that reason. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many times have you heard me say that that word no means not even one? None whatsoever. No condemnation for those. See, the church needs to wake up to that truth, though. There's no condemnation in you. Quit trying to perform when you fail. Quit trying to go, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to go to the shower and shower until the water runs cold. I'm going to wear out a bar of lava soap and a Brillo pad to get this stuff off me. You cannot wash away condemnation through external matters. It has to be washed away by the inflow of understanding your identity in Christ. When you introduce a believer to the finished work of grace, the white flag will wave and the war against the soul will cease. You see, the church has put too much emphasis on the checkered flag. And they've overlooked the tranquility that the white flag of surrender brings. Oh no, brother, the checkered flag. Come on now. Yeah, brother, you got to cross the finish line, brother. Come on now. You've got to persevere to the end. You know, fight the good fight of faith. Come on now. Endure hardship as a good soldier. See, they're waving that checkered flag. They don't know how to wave the white flag, the flag of surrender. When that flag began to wave in my heart, I thought, oh, I'm just so much at peace now. I could tell, I can sense it even to this day that I'm not troubled by nonsensical things. I'm not running around like a chicken with my head cut off. No! Now, the lines we draw and the lines we cross may all be biblical principles, but they should be our response to grace and not our commandment to destiny. That's just the way the Holy Spirit said it. That I'm always chasing my destiny. Forget that nonsense. Just live. Just live in Christ. Live in the Spirit like you already are. He'll walk you into that destiny. But you're always chasing a destiny. You're always trying to get bigger and bigger. I've heard ministers even say that. I just always wanted a big church. Forget that nonsense. Just keep preaching the Word. Just keep preaching the Word. Conflict is one of the major contributors to low self-esteem, okay? And where low self-esteem is found, I'll show you an individual with an identity crisis. They don't know who they are. Did you know that the boys and girls, the men and women that make up the street gangs of the world, all share a common denominator? You know what it is? They all were searching for acceptance. And they found a gang that would take them in. In other words, they weren't satisfied with their own identity. They had to be tattooed by a gang. They had to wear the coat of the gang, the bling-bling of the gang, if you will. From the bully at school or from their parents at home, many children experienced conflict at an early age as they witness their parents or their caregivers fighting with each other. Now listen, friends, if you never grew up in that environment, I praise God for that. I did, though. I know what it's like to live like that. I watched as my daddy would get his shotgun off the wall and chase my mother out of the house in the middle of winter. She's putting her boots on, running as fast as she can. Nobody should see that kind of stuff. I watched as my stepdaddy twisted my mother's arm and broke it, and she had to wear a cast on it. I watched that kind of stuff. I watched my stepdaddy slit the throat of our pet dog because it liked my mother more than it liked my stepdaddy. I grew up in that stuff. I know what that looks like. I'm just telling you, if you didn't live in that kind of stuff, then praise God that you didn't live in that. But I'm telling you, people are living in that. I lived in that. It was awful. Again, the root system of conflict is condemnation, friends. Remove condemnation and conflict will cease. Children are like little sponges as they absorb the spewed toxins of negative emotions that have been modeled in front of their little innocent eyes and their unadulterated ears and their tender little hearts. Many learn at a very young age that they can't even trust their parents. Many children misinterpret conflict with painful thoughts that somehow they are the cause of it. That maybe they're the reason mama and daddy's fighting. Maybe they're the reason they quarrel all the time. That it's somehow my fault. Friends, if you blend a graceless home with a fatherless home, you will have the perfect environment to colonize law, the war against the soul. In Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we find these words. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His name literally means, my God is king. What a great name to name your kid. My God is king. When his parents would have looked at him when he was born, they would have said, man, my God is king. Maybe they struggled to have a child and finally have a child. <laughs> they just said, let's celebrate. My God is king. They named him Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. Would you like to know what her name means? It means, my delight. My delight, it's rooted in the pleasant one, but her name translates as my delight. What a great name. And that's what they heard every time you called them. It would have been synonymous with just saying, hey, my delight. When she heard Naomi, she heard my delight. The names of the two sons were Machlon, which means sickly, and Kilion, which means wasting away. What names to name your children? I think in those days, they just looked at their children. One probably had been born sick, anemic somehow. And they just said, your name is Kmaklon, sickly." Looked at the next one and said, boy, you don't have much meat on your bones. You are Kilyon. I mean, parents wouldn't just normally do this kind of stuff, right? Kilyon, which means wasting away. Next scripture. They were Ephrathes from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Remember, there's a famine in the land. They're hungry. They're in search for food. They went to a godless land called Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband. What does the name Naomi mean? My delight. Come on. Remember that, okay? My delight. Naomi's husband died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. Next scripture. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi, what's her name mean? My delight! And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi, what's her name mean? Come on, my delight. When Naomi heard in Moab, she's living in this godless land, been there 10 years. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law, that's Orpah and Ruth, Prepare to return home from there. Next scripture. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then (laughs) Naomi, what does her name mean again? My delight, right. I want you to remember that now. That's her name, my delight. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, They're following her. She says, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. Next scripture. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi, what's her name mean again? I forgot. My delight. <laughs> my delight, I'm glad you remembered. But Naomi, my delight, said to these daughters-in-law, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Next scripture. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, Even if I had a husband tonight, and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah? Kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. I love these words, but Ruth clung to her. You see, Ruth remembers her name, my delight. She remembers she's from Bethlehem, the house of bread. She gets in all that stuff. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Let me tell you something. Life can get a little messy at times, especially with family, right? Life can be filled with drama. We're going to have our ups and downs, our highs and our lows, our ins and our outs. We're going to live one moment on the mountaintop and the next one in the valley. It is in times like these that we must remember that God is not the one who is bringing calamity upon us. Conversely, come on, just the opposite. Our Father is ordering our steps and orchestrating our journey back to the house of bread. We must never allow a season of hardship to determine our value or mislabel our identity. We are sons of God. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus We are more than conquerors. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Naomi had done nothing wrong. She simply followed her husband. She simply went along on the journey with her husband and her sons to the heathen land of Moab. What is she going to do? Stay behind? Protest? No. Naomi was experienced, and you can tell by the way she's communicating with her daughters-in-law, that she is experiencing conflict of the soul. There's something that's stirring in Naomi. She had been grieving the loss of her husband and sons. She didn't feel worthy to be called my delight. That name became almost offensive to her. Naomi was under so much condemnation, so much pressure, that she even attempted to change her identity by changing her name. Look at the next scriptures. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So the two women went on their way. Who's the two women? Naomi and Ruth. Orpah has went back. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred. Remember, Naomi's been gone for 10 years at least. So they got a little stirred up when they saw Naomi walking back in because of them. And the women of the town exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? See, they haven't forgotten who she is. What does Naomi mean? My delight. They said, Could this be my delight? Could this be Naomi? Naomi heard him. Look at the next scriptures. Naomi said, don't call me my delight. Don't call me Naomi. She told them, call me Mara, which means bitterness. She's become bitter. She said, I don't want to be known by that name. You call me Mara. I've changed my name. I've changed my identity. It means bitterness. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She said, I went away full. (laughs) But the Lord has brought me back empty. That's a good place to be, friends. See, when I journeyed out of the law-based doctrine, I went away what I thought was full. And then I really knew what it was like to be empty. And that's where the Lord says, are you hungry? Can I feed you? Can I feed you on this grace? Can I feed you on this new covenant? She said, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me my delight? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. Now, friends, just because it's recorded in the Bible doesn't mean God had done that to her. Job's friends were wrong, too, weren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. The conversation has just been recorded. That's all. But God didn't do that. Naomi's story is our story too. She has mischaracterized Daddy's heart. God's heart. Like Naomi, believers when bombarded with unbearable thoughts and unpleasant circumstances often attempt to return to the cocoon that was shed at salvation. We must never forget who we are, but more importantly, we must never forget whose we are. We're always his. My final scriptures. First Peter chapter two, verses nine through twelve. Look what Peter's doing. He's reminding you of your identity. Come on. He says, look, let me tell you, you are a chosen generation. Come on. A royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past. We're not a people. In other words, he's talking about the Gentiles. They were not a people. They were not called by God's name. They had no identity. He's saying, but that's over with. Now I'm telling you, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a peculiar people. You're an awesome people. Then he says, but you are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, he's talking to the church, he's talking to believers, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. Look at these words, which war against the soul. That scripture right there was the inspiration for this message as I began to meditate on that. It was birthed out of that scripture there. So Peter is saying, look, stay away from this stuff because it wars against your soul. It strips you of your identity. It makes you want to go from my delight to bitterness. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, Glorified God in the day of visitation. Peter begins these verses by establishing the church's identity a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and the beloved people of God. The reason Peter charges us to abstain from fleshly lusts. Is not because fleshly lusts jeopardize our salvation or because abstaining is our maintenance man for holiness. None of those reasons. He tells us to abstain from fleshly lusts because fleshly lusts are not fitting for the believer. Fleshly lusts were left behind in our shed cocoon. A mind governed by the flesh is death but a mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. As it was with the Apostle Paul, Peter is wanting to remind us that our identity is in Christ Jesus. The one who condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the flesh to the spirit. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Conflict of soul has a root system. And that root system is condemnation. It can seize our minds with restless meditations. The word conflict again means to struggle. Conflict often produces these uninvited, gnarly feelings of shame and guilt, anxiety and fear, sadness and depression. Many people, come on, many people have spiraled down and have been swallowed into the abyss of hopelessness. But when the axe is laid at the foot of condemnation, then condemnation will cease to bear conflict and the white flag of surrender will wave. Friends, we can learn a great principle from the caterpillar. Once the caterpillar sheds its cocoon, it can never again take up residence in the former tabernacle. It doesn't fit in. And it's not in the right environment. It's no longer compatible. Our old man has been shed. We are dead to the law. We are free from the law. We are no longer under the law. And Christ is the end of the law for the sake of righteousness. We are new creations, come on, in Christ Jesus. We live as royal priests in a new kingdom. We have been released from that which confined us at one time, that which bound us at one time. Our struggle to live the Christian life through the law has subsided. The law, although perfect, is like the crocodile. Both bite hard and they don't let you go. And each are perfectly deadly to those who are under them. The letter, though, also known as the law, is the ministry of condemnation and death. The scriptures tell us that the law killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Again, we are no longer under the law, and no longer in the crocodile infested swamp. Friends, friends, what we possess in Christ Jesus is breathtakingly beautiful. Can you see it? It's beautiful. Unscrambling an egg or stuffing a butterfly back into its cocoon would be easier than undoing our salvation. Sonship is our identity and Jesus is our inheritance. The sonship that we possess can never Transition from my delight to bitterness. The Lord never makes our life bitter. He only makes our lives better. In closing, can I just draw our attentions back for a moment to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? The woman that was facing the judging stones because she had been caught? Did her crocodile tears save her? No. Did the law save her? No. How could it? It's the ministry of condemnation. Only Jesus. But Jesus. Only Jesus could save her. So, Pastor Mark, would you remind me once again how it was that Jesus saved her? Yes, of course. He dismissed the Pharisees from the outward conflict, and delivered the adulteress from the inward condemnation. That's how it happened. Jesus said to her, "Woman, where are thine accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one." So was her response. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Another way to say it is, go now and leave the law, the war against your soul. Father, we thank you so much that you take deep truths and make them simple. We thank you, Father, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We don't have to be concerned about all the snapping crocodiles at our heels. We don't have to be concerned about that. We are holding hands with the precious Holy Spirit, the one you gave us as a helper, as a comforter, as our protector. So, Father, thank you that this revelation of your amazing grace has the ability to become everybody's. Not just ours, but everybody's. Father, there are going to be times when we want to call ourselves names that are not fitting. Maybe even do things that are not fitting for a believer. Maybe say things that are not fitting for a believer. And it's in those times that Paul and Peter remind us, does it fit? in a new creation's heart. Father, I thank you that you've given us wings to soar on the current of the Holy Spirit. We live in a new kingdom. We live in a new kingdom. And we thank you, Father, that the white flag of surrender has already been waved. All we're giving up, really, is all that nonsense that could never help us. The scriptures tell us that the law made nothing perfect, but Jesus did. And Father, thank you for that example out of John 8, where Jesus encountered that woman and gave her the gift of no condemnation. What a beautiful thing. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE G-I-V-E to 833-632-1315, where you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.